Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com. Thanks, brother. Thanks. Wow, that was really sweet and tender. Thank you. Thank you. Wow. I feel really, my heart is warmed. Thank you. God's grace. Hey, good morning. What a joy to be with you this morning. My name is AJ, and I am up from Eugene, uh, Oregon, and I want to take some time this morning um, as you, as a community, begin to prepare uh, your hearts for uh, the death and resurrection of Jesus in just a short time. I want to take a few minutes this morning, and I want to reflect with you on a topic that I think you're going to find uh, is really important for your life, and I certainly know is important to God. Would you find your way to the Bible? If you have your Bible, um, would you make your way to John chapter 20, uh, the Gospel of John, uh, the fourth Gospel, and find your way to John, uh, chapter, uh, John chapter 20? Um, and what I want to do this morning is um, I've got some, uh, some slides that I'm going to use, and I want to I give a talk that I'm going to call The Way of Thomas. And I, I want to talk about this morning, I want to talk about doubt, and I want to talk about this really big D word that you've probably heard a lot of. I want to talk about what's called deconstruction. And what I want to do this morning is I want to talk about the way of Jesus and how in the world we follow Jesus uh, with our struggles uh, of, of faith. So I'm a college professor. I teach um, at Bushnell University. I'm a Bible and theology professor. And I teach at a school of about 700, 800 undergraduate students. And my students have the greatest questions. Now, I don't, I don't know what questions you have about God or the Bible, um, but I can tell you that in my family, uh, I have a 10-year-old son. In the last two years, my son and I have been really trying to figure out, theologically figure out, if it's at all possible that Bigfoot exists. <laughs> it has been an entire year and a half theological, biblical journey. Last year, uh, we were up in Eureka, California, and we went on a hike, and we were out kind of in the wilderness, and we were kind of having a great time. We were looking for Bigfoot. The whole trip was pretty much looking for Bigfoot. And in the middle of this hike, we heard it was Bigfoot. It was a growl. I don't know. I don't, it wasn't a dog. It, it wasn't a human. It was like a middle of those two. It was Bigfoot. Now, in, in, a, in a really sort of weird way, I mean, in, in all seriousness, my son and I, we've actually wondered about this, right? Is Bigfoot real? But we, in, a, in, a, in a very real way, my gut tells me this morning that some of us have really deep questions about faith, the Bible, theology, God, that we, we really don't have an answer for. Uh, back in the 1500s, there was a guy named Martin Luther who was apparently asked by one of his students, uh, Dr. Luther, what did God create on day eight, right? God took seven days to create. What was he doing on day eight? And Luther apparently said that on the eighth day, God was creating hell for people who ask really silly questions. <laughs> I've often felt like that with some of my students. But the truth is, I'm gonna bet that some of you today come with real struggles of faith. And you're not, you're not thinking necessarily about Bigfoot, you're, but you're probably thinking about things like Man, I've really been wounded by the church. How do I follow Jesus now? Um, man, I, am re- I wanna follow God, but I am really wrestling with 
my sexuality, my understanding of gender. I'm really struggling to understand my body. Some of you probably come out of home experiences, family of origin things that wounded you tremendously and you're wondering like, how do I make sense of that? Some of you are probably really struggling to understand how to follow Jesus in a world where it seems like the church has been co-opted by political powers and you feel complicit, like being, being, even being in the room makes you dirty. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna bet, I'm gonna bet that you bring with you today an unresolved question, a doubt. And I wanna talk about that because I'm totally convinced that if we're called to follow Jesus, we're not just to called to follow him in all the places in our life where things are resolved. I actually think we're called to follow Jesus in those parts of our life where we have absolutely no clarity. God, would you help us this morning? Would you, by the power of the Spirit, be present in this room? Thank you for Pastor Benji, Jen, for inviting me to be here, but this morning, we're here in this room together. By the Holy Spirit, would you speak to us very clearly? In the name of Jesus, amen. Before we read the Bible, uh, my friend Jerry Root teaches at Western, uh, Western uh, Seminary, or to Wheaton Seminary, forgive me, Wheaton University in uh, Chicago. And he has this funny thing where he says, you know, what, what is the first thing that's gonna happen when we get to heaven? Like when we enter in the glory of God and we see God face to face for the very first time, what's gonna, what's, what, what's the first thing we're gonna say? And you can think about it, like what are we, what, what's gonna come out of our mouth, right? That moment we see God in his glory. And Dr. Root says this, uh, who's a, he's a, a scholar who spent his life studying C.S. Lewis. He's like friends with all of C.S. Lewis's kids and stuff. Crazy guy, so cool. <clears throat> and he says, he says this, the minute we enter heaven and we see God face to face, we're gonna look around, and this is gonna be the first word out of our mouth. We're all gonna look around and we're gonna go, oh, yes it will make sense. Everything we will see at that moment will make our lives clear. Why did I experience that thing as a kid that hurt me so much? Why did I wrestle with that question my entire life? Why did my mom die when, when I was so young? Why did my spouse leave me at that moment? At that moment, we will look around in heaven and everything will be clear. But before then, we see dimly. In fact, that's the language of Paul, isn't it? In the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says that right now we don't see clearly, we see imperfectly, we, we see through glass dimly. We don't see God face to face right now. We will see God face to face, but we don't see him face to face right now. But that moment when we do, we're gonna look around and we're gonna go, oh, I get it, I get it. There was this guy, Karl Barth, who was one of my favorite theologians. He wrote a book called, a series of books called Church Dogmatics. It's 10, it's 20 million words long. It is said that he didn't even read the whole thing. <laughs> and Bart, near the end of his life, was asked about his 12 million word volume of systematic theology called dogmatic, uh, church dogmatics. He was asked, what will happen when he gets to heaven? 
And Bart said this, in heaven we shall know all that is necessary and we shall not have to write on paper or read anymore. Indeed, I shall be able to dump even my book over the growth of which the angels have long been amazed on some heavenly floor as a pile of waste paper. His point is this, that in the presence of God, even our theology will fall to the ground as a failure in the presence of God. Madeline Lingle, one of my favorite uh, Christian writers, she says in her book, Irrational Season, that knowing God is a little bit like knowing your spouse. You, you know, you get married and you, you feel so bad for people when they're about to get married because they have absolutely no clue what they're getting themselves into. It's a sense of compassion and sympathy. My empathetic levels are just rising. What are you doing? And then you get married and you're so jazzed for about two weeks. And then after two weeks, you'll have a moment. I guarantee it'll happen to all of you. If it hasn't happened already, it's coming. You're gonna look at your spouse and you're gonna go, who is that? (laughs) Madeline Lingle, in her book, Irrational Season, she says the truth is, it takes a lifetime to learn someone. And that is that the, the process of being married, it takes a long time to learn about the person you've fallen in love with. And in a way, that's what it's like being a Christian. Is that you may love Jesus, but friends, it takes a lifetime to learn Jesus. It takes a lifetime to learn about God. Um, I wanna talk about what I call the theological journey. In fact, what I think this morning, before we get to the text, is that all of us are on this journey of like learning about God, and it takes an entire life. Like none of you have fully arrived yet. You're all like, all like on the way, but you haven't arrived yet. It's this theological journey, I call it, it's a lifelong process by which uh, we either grow or we devolve in our knowledge about the living God. My gut would tell me if I asked you this morning, how many of you believe today the same exact way you believed about God 10 years ago? I'm gonna bet none of you would say that your belief structure is the exact same. And even if you did, I would say there's probably something wrong. Because the truth of the matter is, when you follow the living God, It is a lifelong process of realizing how much you don't know. When I was in Portland for about 10 years, I planted a church in urban Portland. I met a young man by the name of Phil. And Phil uh, moved from middle America, conservative middle America, uh, to Portland for a tech job he'd gotten. He He was 20 years old, he had moved to Portland, and he was so jazzed to be a part of our church. We'd started this church in urban Portland, uh, in this part of the, the city called uh, the Hawthorne District. We'd started this church. He'd heard about us. He'd, he'd moved in, and he is so excited to be a part of the church, and, he's, and he emails me. He says, hey, let's go to coffee. We're sitting for coffee, and he is just so jazzed to be in Portland. He's on mission. He wants to love Portland. He wants to serve the church. He wants to be on mission. He wants to reach all of his, all of his coworkers for Jesus. I'm super jazzed because we need volunteers. I'm a church planner at that stage, you'll take anybody to do anything, okay? I'm like, yeah, man, so, you know, and so we're talking about ways he can serve, and he is so excited to be there. And he's gonna serve on the sound team, he's gonna be a part of the worship, and, and I remember saying goodbye, and, and, and I was so jazzed this guy was gonna be a part of our church. And I, and I just began to notice that he stopped showing up. And because I'm a busy, pa- I was a busy pastor at the time, um, I forgot about him. And a year later, I get an email from Phil, same guy, and he says, can we meet again? And I had had sort of forgotten about Phil, and I said, I'd love to, let's meet in my office again. And Phil sits in my office, and he tells me what has happened in one year in Portland. 
in one year in Portland, first of all, he started coming to church, but it was really hard going to church because by coming to church, he started feeling lonely and he forgot, he started remembering, you know, missing his family back in Kansas and he was, you know, feeling lonely, waves of loneliness. And, and then he says, and then, and then I, I got a roommate and, and the roommate was an atheist and the, it was really hard because he's like the nicest person I've ever met and I was always taught as a kid that the atheists are like the meanest people in the world. I was like, how do you make sense of the fact that this atheist guy is like the nicest guy I've ever met and the guy's brilliant. He knows everything that's apparently wrong with the Bible and my faith. What am I supposed to do? And so I just started listening to all these podcasts. My life became one big podcast binge. And then he tells me, he goes, and then I found weed. And he goes, that was awesome. <laughs> and he said, it like helped my anxiety. And then he says, and then the election happened. And Donald Trump won. And all my neighbors, all my family back home, they were all super happy. But when you're in Portland, you can't be happy. And I was like, the people there were happy. I was super mad. And I didn't know how to talk to my parents. And then he says, all of a sudden, I started noticing all my relationships with Christians started ending. And my life became one big podcast binge and he's sitting there in my office, and he goes, I just couldn't come to church anymore. I've been questioning everything. I've got questions about sexuality. I've got questions about the Bible. I don't know if I trust the, the church anymore. I don't know if I trust the Bible, and he sits there, and I just notice this, his tone shifts, and a tear starts coming down his face, and he looks at me, and he says, I have got all these questions, AJ. Am I allowed to still be a Christian? And I realized at that moment, this was five, six number of years ago, I remember at that moment thinking, I am not talking to a person, I'm talking to a generation. And what I have found with Phil, I've walked with Phil five, six years, he is following Jesus today, he just graduated with his philosophy degree from Portland State University, he wants to be a philosopher for Jesus, but here's what I've found. Jesus wants to meet us in our doubts. And if, if it's true that Jesus can save us from our sin, then he can save us in our doubts. And it turns out in the Bible, that's actually a story of one of the disciples. In John chapter 20, we meet this guy by the name of Thomas. Some of you have known Thomas uh, via VeggieTale video or something that Thomas is doubting Thomas. And I appreciate you, know, you giving uh, uh, the, the word doubting to his name. But actually, that term doubting is not given to Thomas anywhere uh, in the New Testament. It's, uh, he's never called doubting Thomas in the New Testament. He's called Thomas. And <clears throat> we have this story of a young disciple who's been following Jesus for three years. Uh, Jesus on Friday dies on a cross. Saturday, he sits in a tomb. And then on Sunday, Jesus resurrects. And Thomas, after Jesus' resurrection, struggles to believe. He struggles to believe that Jesus has resurrected. Let me read this story to you. This is John chapter 20. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. And by the way, uh, we should, I should say to you, uh, we're going to see in just a second something really cool about the resurrection body. Let me, t- let me show you this. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord but he said to them, unless, notice that word, if in, you got your Bible open, circle that word unless. Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and my finger where the nails were and put my hands into his side, I will not believe. Okay, keep going. A week later, Jesus' disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, what did I tell you? 
um, one of the coolest things about resurrection, the number one repeated thing, I know in a couple weeks you're gonna celebrate Resurrection Sunday, the number one thing Jesus does in the time between he resurrects and when he ascends to heaven, the number one recorded activity of Jesus in the resurrection body is how many times he eats. He is always eating. Now there's two pieces of good news about that. Number one, number one is uh, the resurrection state will include food. And why that's important, then friends, heaven is described more often than not as a feast than anything else, okay? Um, hunger isn't a game, it's heaven. Hunger, friends, f- let's just end service now and praise the Lord, shall we? Is this good news, okay? But secondly, hunger, the resurrection state does not end our need for food. In fact, we will, in heaven, still continue food trucks, I mean, for all of it. (laughs) It'll be there, and I love this. What does Jesus do in his resurrection state? Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Jesus is always, in his resurrection body, walking through walls. He can walk through walls. When doors are closed, he can walk through doors. That's cool. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side, stop doubting and believe. And let me just ask you this this morning. Jesus, in his resurrected body, does he have scars or not? Jesus resurrects with scars. Could Jesus have resurrected without scars? I'll come back to that. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God, Then Jesus told him, because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. In this moment, Thomas cannot believe that Jesus has resurrected. When you look at the storyline of Thomas, there are three moments in his journey. The first is this. The first moment is when Thomas follows Jesus. Now you need to understand about Thomas's journey, his discipleship process. He had been following Jesus for three years. For three years. Jesus was 33 years old when he dies on the cross. Uh, he ascends to heaven at 33. Between the ages of 30 and 33, Jesus spent his life doing all the miracles that you and I know. He did the teachings, the drove out the demons. He fed thousands of people lunch uh, on a hillside. He, uh, Jesus did all of the, inc- the Sermon on the Mount. All the incredible stuff Jesus did in three years. In fact, we know almost nothing from Jesus' first 30 years. Three years of ministry where he does all of this world-changing stuff. Here's what's crazy about this story. Thomas would have been at all of those experiences. Meaning this, Thomas had seen demons get cast out, Thomas had seen people resurrected from the grave. He had been around Lazarus. Thomas had seen the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. Thomas had likely been at important miracles. He'd seen it all. He had seen it all. And here's what I need you, need you to see. So he, he follows, and then the second stage for Thomas is he's going to doubt. So he, he follows, and then he doubts. But here's what I need you to see. Okay, and I want you to put this in your back pocket. I'm telling you, I'm, I'm 41. I've been following Jesus for 26 years. And I'm gonna tell you something this morning that I, I need you to take with you. Because if you don't take this with you, 
you're, 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 gonna, you're gonna spend your life feeling like a, a, as a Christian, as though you've somehow failed God. Listen, I wanna, I wanna liberate you, just like a little liberation from slavery this morning. You can follow Jesus faithfully and see the miracles, have encounters with Christ, know Jesus personally, see the miracles, speak in tongues, have the miraculous take place around you, be filled with the Holy Spirit. You can walk in the power of God and cast out demons for three years and still struggle with doubt. Think about that. It's weird to me. I'll confess this. The number of times I have spoken at a youth camp or a college camp or something like that where like people have incredible experiences with God. They see a healing. They hear, they hear God speak to them. They have an encounter with God on Thursday night, which is always the night when the Holy Spirit comes at a camp. <laughs> they experience miracles and like crazy stuff. You would be shocked at the number of people who I knew 10 years ago experienced God in a camp who today have walked away from their faith who today have deconstructed everything and pulled their faith apart, who today want nothing to do. Here's my point. If you think the cure for doubt is experience, you're off. In fact, I hear it all the time. Somebody, I had a student say to me, I would believe in God if God would show up and talk to me. And my gut level response is, tell that to Thomas. You can have God speak to you, show you miracles, and those things, miracles, are not a vaccine against doubt. I even want to take it further. I want to suggest to you this morning that you can faithfully love God with all of your heart and be dead set on following Jesus and still go through seasons of not knowing how to believe and follow Jesus. That doubt and deconstruction can at times be a part of following Jesus. You know how I know? Because I have a Bible. And one of the disciples walked through that. And there are some Thomases in the room that need to know that part of the discipleship journey can very well be a moment where you struggle to believe. I I really, I I find it kind of interesting, by the way, as a Bible nerd, I find it kind of interesting that Thomas, his doubt experience in this moment, right? Jesus has not ascended yet. He's resurrected. He showed off his scars and all that stuff. He's there. And Thomas is struggling to believe. I find it interesting that there's a connection between Thomas's doubt, his doubt, and the fact that he missed out on seeing Jesus the first time. Did you notice that Jesus shows up and like all 10 disciples, Judas wasn't in the room, um, ten disciples saw Jesus' resurrection body, but, but, but Thomas wasn't there. And what does Thomas do? He, he missed out. He wasn't in the room. He wasn't there. He didn't see Jesus uh, show his body off. He, didn't, he wasn't there. And Thomas's doubt, it is striking to me, is connected to what you and I have a word for it. Um, Thomas's doubt is connected to what you and I call FOMO. He has missed out on something. What's he missed out on? He didn't get to see the resurrected Jesus. And, and I say that to say, I, 
this again, some inner healing may be going on here, but for some of us, our experiences of doubt and frustration with God are often connected to things like this. Why does everybody else get to get married but not me? Why does everybody else get to have kids but I don't? Why does everybody else seem to have arrived and I still struggle with sexual desires that haven't left me? Why does everybody else, da 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 da. And across the board, in my experience, those experiences of feeling like you have missed out are often connected on some level to moments where we struggle to believe in God. And, and in, the, in reality, when you look at the story, you gotta remember that actually him missing out becomes the coolest redemption part of the story. But you, you, you gotta connect in your mind. You gotta remember that sometimes you do miss out. Sometimes you do miss out. Sometimes you don't get what everybody else gets. But that doesn't mean God is not profoundly in love with you. And it doesn't mean that Jesus Christ is not enamored with you. We all walk with a limp. I had a friend uh, years ago, uh, he said, AJ, I want you to take a piece of paper and write down the names of all the Christian heroes that have had a huge impact on your life. And I wrote down people like C.S. Lewis, uh, Flannery O'Connor, Henry Nouwen. um, uh, I wrote down all these names. And my friend said, I want you to look at all these people who have changed your life. Why have they impacted your life the way I have? And all of them had one thing in common. All of them did. Every single one of my Christian heroes have some element of their Christian life that was never fully resolved. C.S. Lewis's wife died of cancer right after they got married. He spent the rest of his life grieving. Flannery O'Connor had lupus. She only got to write a couple books. She, she wasn't even able-bodied. She couldn't do a thing. And she uh, died at a very, very, very young age of a painful disease. And Henry Nowen, who's an absolute hero of mine, uh, struggled his entire adult life with his, uh, with his sexual desires. And all three of these people have one thing in common. None of them, none of them, got everything that they wanted this side of heaven. And I say that to say, sometimes the way God makes deep people is he allows you to experience not getting everything that you want. And that he, he, he wants to meet you in that. And I'm not in any way, shape, or form valorizing suffering. I'm simply saying that sometimes we don't get everything we want, and that's God's brilliant way to make us really deep people. There's a, a lot of conversation in our, in our culture right now about um, this big word, deconstruction. Deconstruction, uh, wrote a book about it called After Doubt, and you can go um, uh, read a lot more about that if you want, but really it's this idea of those moments in our life where um, we, we undo or question beliefs that we've previously held. And you could get on TikTok or Twitter right now and find just about everybody's got an opinion on deconstruction. Everybody's talking about it. In, in the church, everywhere, there's a lot of conversation about, about deconstruction. I, I wanna put up a triangle up here. There's a, yeah, thank you. Gosh, your people are good. Um, <laughs> I think about it this way, uh, the theological journey, we're, right? We're all growing in God. I think about it this way. I think there's three stages to most of our journeys with Jesus. The first stage is what we call the construction stage, right up here. And what, what we mean by that is this. These are the early years. Those are those primitive early years when you first started following Jesus. For some of you, you were raised in a Christian home and you were handed the faith by your parents or a church. For some of you, you're brand new Christians. And right now, you're like literally just picking up uh, your first beliefs in Jesus. That early stage is so awesome because you are just enamored with Jesus. You'll take it all in. 
When I first met Jesus, I was 16 years old. I met Jesus in my math class in high school. I overheard the two girls behind me arguing about when Jesus was coming back. They'd been reading the Left Behind series. <laughs> and I went home, I'd never read my Bible. I cracked open my Bible, I read it, and I had a profound encounter with the living Christ. My life was turned upside down. I eventually led my mom to Jesus. I baptized her at 19 years old. My family was turned upside down. That early year of construction, I, I started going to this really conservative Baptist church in my hometown. And I'm so grateful that I went there because they forced me to memorize the Bible. They forced me to share my faith. They forced me to repent and I'm so grateful for it. That construction stage for me was like I was on fire for God. For God, I was just on fire for God. Uh, in Calvinism, they have this thing called the cage stage where it's best if they just put you in a cage for six months because you're a little too on fire. <laughs> and I was, like, I was like crazy on fire, right? Crazy on fire. And it was awesome. I was taught about the Trinity. I was taught how to read my Bible. I was taught, it was so incredible. And for you, that's a, that stage is so awesome. It's so good. We're given the gospel, our first beliefs in Jesus. But the problem is sometimes for a lot of us, we follow Jesus long enough to figure out that the same people that handed us really, 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 really good things like the gospel and the Bible and the Trinity and how to repent and how to share our faith, that we were handed those good things, but somewhere along the way they also gave us some junk. And I gotta tell you, in my community where I first started following Jesus, they handed me the Bible, the gospel, and I thank God that they did. But that same community also gave me basically gave me an absolutely horrible view of women in the church that basically saw women as footnotes in the kingdom of God. And while I'm so grateful for the people that handed me the faith, the older I got and the more I began to learn, I began to realize that actually I was not only handed the gospel and some good, the Bible, I was also given some stuff that probably needed to be undone. Uh, Eugene Peterson, in one of his books, he says this. He says, you know, when you go to the hospital, why do you go to the hospital? You go to the hospital to get healthy. That's why you go. But guess what happens? Sometimes when you go to the hospital, what ends up happening? You get sick. And he says, actually, there, there's a whole a set of diseases called iatrogenic diseases, which are diseases that people get when they go to the hospital. And the truth of the matter is, friends, that God has saved you he has redeemed you, but he's also put you, in many cases, he's put you in a broken community. And sometimes that broken community has given you things that are not about Jesus. And in a way, that deconstruction stage, I'm gonna tell you, what I, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna tell you something maybe, maybe you don't wanna hear. I actually think sometimes the deconstruction stage can be a good thing. And what I mean when I say that is, if you have been handed something about Jesus, an idea, a theology, a view of Jesus that is not true to Jesus of the Bible, in the name of Jesus, deconstruct it. Do away with anything that is not Jesus. And I'm talking about the Jesus of the New Testament, not the Jesus of self-reliance, uh, not the Jesus uh, of self-awareness, not the Jesus of you become your own God, the Jesus of the Bible. If you have any notion in your mind that does not reflect that guy, burn it to the ground. Amen. That, friends, is good deconstruction. You go, well, okay, do you know who did deconstruction? Jesus. 
He's teaching, right, and goes, you've heard it said, and he'll say, like, you guys have this interpretation of the Bible. You've heard it said, but I say to you, da, da, da. You know what he's doing? He's deconstructing. He's saying, you were given a bad idea of what God has said, but I'm gonna tell you what God has said, because guess what? God has said the word, he's like right here. (laughs) See, part of following Jesus is recognizing the lies that you have believed and naming them and changing them. Turns out, catch this, we have a word for changing your mind. You know what it is? Uh, in Greek, we have a, uh, it's one of the most repeated words in the New Testament. It's the word metanoia. Metanoia. Do you know what it means? It literally it means repent. Metanoia, is, it means meta, change, noia, mind. Change your mind. To change your mind to follow Jesus. We have a word for that. It's called repentance. And there are times, friends, when we have been given ideas about God that are just not God, and we have to name them and move away from them to follow Jesus. C.S. Lewis, put, there's a, oh, there's, there's, okay, C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis has this line in his book, A Grief Observed. Uh, C.S. Lewis's wife, Joy, had just died. And C.S. Lewis says, here's a problem. He had this picture of his wife, Joy, who had died of cancer. He says, I have fallen in love with the picture of Joy. And he, he says, there's a brilliant section where he says, here's the problem. I love my picture of my wife more than I loved my wife. And at that moment, he talks about how we do that to God. Just listen. C.S. Lewis, I need Christ, not something that resembles him. I want joy, not something that is like her. A really good photograph might become, in the end, a snare, a horror, an obstacle. Images of the holy easily become holy images, sacrosanct. My idea of God is not a divine idea. It has to be shattered time after time. He shatters it himself. He is the great iconoclast. Could we not almost say that this shattering is one of the marks of his presence? The incarnation is the supreme example. It leaves all previous ideas of the Messiah in ruins. Let me tell you what he's saying. He is saying that the mark of following Jesus is that sometimes Jesus comes along and says, you have been loving your ideas of me more than you've been loving me. And friends, I am a theologian. I'm gonna tell you right now, we are often better at loving our theology than we are loving Jesus Christ. Part of following Jesus is that we are willing to leave anything behind to follow Jesus, and that means sometimes we have to leave our bad ideas behind. Come on, are you with me? But I gotta tell you, that's good deconstruction. And when I have a student who comes in my office and they're like, I love God with all my heart and I need to rethink what I think because I've been handed some bad ideas, that is good deconstruction. But I gotta tell you, and I don't wanna, I don't wanna make you mad this morning. I'm, I don't live here. And I'm getting on a plane this afternoon, so. There's also a really dangerous form of deconstruction. There's another form of deconstruction. Frankly, I see a lot, and it really breaks my heart. And it's not the person who says, like, I want to do away with ideas that don't reflect Jesus. It's not the view of deconstruction that says, like, I want to leave anything and follow Jesus. It's not that view. It's, It's a view of deconstruction that says, Really, at the end of the day, I don't believe in the Bible and I don't believe in Jesus anymore because really, I just want to sleep with who I want to sleep with. 
And honestly, I just want to smoke a bunch of weed and do my thing, and I'm tired of having God tell me how to live my life. And I know that might be hard to hear, and some of you are going to write me emails. But I want to say that Jesus, if you are tempted by that world to just abandon Jesus because you want to do your thing, I want to tell you, because I've walked it with people, it's a really dark road. And it'll be really fun for about three months. And then like the prodigal, you're gonna wake up and you're gonna go like, I've got everything I want, but I'm dead inside. And again, I know that's hard. I know, I know you're mad. You're mad. But part of following Jesus is being willing to actually have a Lord who speaks to you. I, I hear, like, um, we'll come back to Thomas. I, I hear, did you, did you notice this word? Um, he says, unless I see nail marks in his hands. That's a really interesting thing for Thomas to say because he's essentially saying, I can go till 1020, right, Benji? Right, Benji, is that right? Okay, okay, oh, good, love it, okay. Whew, close call, okay. He said, it's interesting to, to me because Thomas says, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, then I won't believe. That's an interesting comment to me. That's interesting, because what's happened is he's saying, I will believe in Jesus if, da 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 da. Now it's the if, unless I see, if, unless I get this, then I won't this. And that voice is so tempting. When I have a student who says to me, what, I just taught a class on hell, it was a whole class on hell, it was crazy. It was, it was so interesting. I'm teaching a class on Bible, sexuality, and gender right now. It is so steamy. I have never had Bible students more interested in class than right now. They are like so into the Bible, and I love it. But the number of times when I hear a student who says something to the effect of, I could never believe in a God who, and then fill in the blank, I could never believe in a God who uh, created hell. I could never believe in a God who thinks that way about sexuality. I could never believe in a God who da 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 and I, there's just a part of me that wants to go, there's a little bit of Thomas in that. Unless I, da 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 da. Because when you, see, when, when you get married, you're giving yourself wholeheartedly to somebody. You're not saying, I will love you as long as da 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 da. No, you're saying, like, I love you. I'm, I'm married to you. I'm all in. No matter what, I'm, I'm in with you. Barring, like, marital unfaithfulness, abuse, I am in. And that's marriage. Marriage is like, I'm all in. But Thomas, we do this thing uh, people are doing now where we're like, God, I'll love you if I get married by next spring. God, I'll love you if <laughs> um, I get the career that I dreamt of. I'll love you if, God, unless these things happen, then I won't believe. I gotta tell you, I gotta tell you, I gotta tell you. That's not a marriage. That's a prenuptial agreement. And a prenuptial agreement says, God, I will love you as long as it is framed around my contractual agreements. And I gotta say, to the degree that you are the one that gets to write the contract, you squelch Jesus because he, refused to live, he refuses to live in your cage. He wants to know you in a wild way. He wants a marriage. He doesn't want a prenup. And you hear that in Thomas. He, unless I believe, there's just a sense of like, unless I believe. My generation of people, I'm again, 41 years old, my generation was raised thinking 
Now, when I was a teenager, the very first Christian book I ever read actually wasn't the Bible. It was a book called I Kissed Dating Goodbye by Joshua Harris. And I'm not here to shame that book or make fun of Josh. He's actually owned it and said it was wrong and bad and it's harmed a lot of people. But my generation that was raised on purity culture was taught that if you don't have sex before marriage, that you're gonna have a perfect, awesome marriage and everything's gonna be great. And my generation found out that was not the gospel. That was the sexual prosperity gospel is what it was. And that actually we were given a formula, we weren't given the gospel. And my generation tasted and saw that was a lie and it's not true. My generation, in many ways, has had to undo just layers and layers and layers of false formulas. We were handed a formula, we weren't handed the gospel. There's a, friends, Thomas, so Thomas doubts, he struggles, he, he doesn't know what to do. But the best part of this story, the best part of this story is that we learn something about the character of Jesus. What does Jesus do to doubters? Does he run away or does he go to him? He goes to him. And you see it in the story because Thomas, he is still there a week later and Jesus shows up. Now show, put the, yeah, the, good, I didn't even have to say it. This is, look at this, I mean, the, the way John tells the story, this is master craft storytelling. Robert McKee in his book, Story, this is nothing compared to this. Listen to this. A week later, now, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. You gotta, you gotta love, Thomas ain't gonna miss out again. He is like, I missed the first time, I'm showing up to every small group, I'm going to every gathering, every leadership meal, everything, I, I'm not missing it again. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. And I just want to point out to you, how long does Jesus wait before Jesus shows up to Thomas? <laughs> a week. <laughs> There's a, a, a line, uh, Dallas Willard in his book, uh, he says, you know, this is really common for Jesus, is that when people ask Jesus to come and do something, he doesn't ever rush. He doesn't ever like drop everything and go like, oh, somebody's struggling with doubt? Ah, run off to fix it. In fact, when you go read the Lazarus story, <laughs> Jesus hears that Lazarus is sick, and when you read the, com the commentaries, it's hilarious, when you read the text, he waits a whole week before he goes. He just like, <whistles> he just like walks. He doesn't rush. And Dallas Willard in his book, he says, Sometimes, why does Jesus do this? Sometimes Jesus lets us stew in our problems. <laughs> I bet you, you've got a problem with God, Jesus, or the Bible, and you're sitting here, and it's in there, and you know exactly what it is. You could name it, you could be nuanced about it, you could, and you got a problem. And I'm gonna tell you, you got that problem, you bring it to Jesus today, and I know you want it to be resolved. I know you want that thing to be fixed. I know you want that doubt to be dealt with. I gotta tell you today, the character of our Lord is probably, guess what? He's not gonna show up for a week. And the reason he's not is because during that week, he's gonna make you a really deep person. You know, like, like 30 years ago, what, even 25 years ago when I met Jesus, if I had a question about the Bible, Jesus, or God, you know what I had to do? It was crazy. I'm gonna tell you what we would do back in the 90s. We had to, we had to do this thing where we would, um, 
We would just like, we would just pray and like talk to each other. We'd like talk to our pastors about God. And you know what I've noticed now? We don't do that. We go to Siri. And you know what's the problem? You know what the problem with immediate answers is? You could find a podcast that'll tell you anything you want to hear, by the way. You know the problem? Is that if you don't have to struggle for a week, then you're not prepared for the answer. There's a reason we tell people don't have sex before marriage. And it's, it's actually not to be jerks. The point is, sex is so beautiful and profound that unless you can't wait, you can't handle it. It's that sacred. And the fact that he waits a week, take, here's what I'm saying, take that question, that doubt, that struggle, and consider it God's gift to chase him. That question is going to make you a deep person. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your fingers here. What does Jesus do? He has scars. How does Jesus address Thomas's doubt? Does he give him an answer? No answers. He doesn't give him an answer. He doesn't give him a YouTube clip. He doesn't say, watch this Bible project video. He doesn't say, hey, go, go, like, uh, go read this awesome book by A.J. Swoboda. <laughs> what does he do? He says, touch me. And I'm gonna tell you right now, having walked through my own deconstruction journey and having struggled with doubt profoundly in my life, the people who have helped me through those moments were never people that gave me YouTube clips. They gave me themselves. They walked with me. They were my friend. They let me touch their scars. And the answers are important, don't get me wrong, but if you've got a friend that's walking through this, I'm gonna tell you right now, it is an itch of the heart, not of the mind. And what they need is they need a friend to walk with them. In fact, I tell you this, when you're with them, just be so cool listening to them that you don't even have to give an answer because that's what God does to Job, right? In fact, God doesn't give Job one answer about his suffering. There's no answer. God doesn't always give us the answers, but he always gives us himself. He lets him touch him. Thirdly, Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God, I'm gonna tell you what this is, he worships. He worships, Thomas gets it, because he knew Jesus had died, he touches his, his scar, and then he worships. He says, my Lord and my God. He is worshiping right now. If I, if I was to think about Christology, the nature of Jesus, this is really important because Thomas is calling Jesus God, and there's nothing in this that says, Thomas says to Thomas, bro, you've taken it too far. Calm down, I'm just a good teacher. Jesus like lets him worship him. He's like totally cool with Jesus being worshiped. Jesus, why? Good teachers don't let people worship him. God lets people worship him. He worships, and then look at this. 
because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. And you know what this is? If we got anybody in the room that's in the movie industry or cinematography or anything, you know exactly what that is. You know what that is? What is it when uh, the actor looks at the camera when they're not supposed to? It's called breaking the, um, is the fourth or third? Whatever wall it is. It's breaking the wall. It's the actor looking at the camera. Look at what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, Thomas, you believe because you've seen me, but Jesus turns to the camera and he looks at you and he says, but blessed are those who believe and have not seen. Who's he talking to? He's talking to you. You know what happens to Thomas after this story? Have you ever met an Indian Christian a person from India who is a Christian who has the last name Thomas. I see hands all over. I have three Indian Christian friends whose last name is Thomas. They go, what in the world? What's with all the Thomases? You want to know why there's so many Thomases? Millions in the world. Guess what happens to Thomas after this story? Thomas is the first missionary to go to India. And he goes to India and he reaches a bunch of people for Jesus. There is a 2,000 year old witness of millions of Christians in India because a doubter went and preached. We have got to stop seeing doubters as problems. They are our future missionaries. If you sit in this room and you felt shame for having questions, I want to say to you, in the name of Jesus, yeah, you got your questions, but your future is beautiful. You have a future and a hope, and your doubt in no way, shape, or form disqualifies you for following the living God. God has a future for you. You're welcome here, by the way. You're welcome here. That is good news. You know, I am, um, I'm gonna close with this. I got two minutes left. I live in Oregon. Would you put that picture of the tomato up on the? <laughs> I live in Oregon. And you know, it, I, I, I thought, coming to San Diego, I thought, I didn't pack appropriately, by the way. I uh, had shorts and a variety of other things. Uh, not expecting it to be very Oregon-y here, but it rains in Oregon about 413 days out of the year. Okay. There's some rain-related trauma in my life that I could definitely use a weather counselor for because uh, I've lived there my whole life. Okay? And when you live in Oregon, you've got re- to find creative reasons to stick around because okay? it's, just, it's just a tundra of angsty, wet sadness. And I love it, I love it. But it is dark and cold and wet, except in the summers. And if you've ever, do we have any Oregonians in the room? Aha! I sensed good things. This is one of the reasons we're there. We, uh, <laughs> we have this, um, my wife and I have an urban farm. We've got 12 chickens and we grow If you have never had an Oregon tomato, there are some things, these tomatoes, this is a picture, you can't eat these 
and tell me there's no God. <laughs> they are unbelievable. We wait all year for these. And every summer, our tomatoes are ripe and we will have friends over for dinner or whatnot and we will have people come over for dinner and there will always be at our dining room table every summer, some Oregonian who will say, or somebody who will say, I don't like tomatoes. And I will serve them my tomatoes. <laughs> now I gotta tell you, we live in a world where I'm seeing a bunch of people walk away from some form of religion or something like, that they think is Christianity. They walk away. And I think it's easy for us to think that everybody who's questioning and struggling is walking away from Jesus. But I wanna suggest to you this morning that often it is not people who are questioning and struggling that are walking away from Jesus. I wanna suggest to you that often it is the sign they're trying to find him. And when I serve these tomatoes and I put them in front of somebody who hates tomatoes and I put a little salt right in front of them and I say, eat these, and they will taste them and they will say, these are tomatoes? And I will say, these are tomatoes. <laughs> and they will look at me and they will say, well, I thought I hated tomatoes. And you know what you learn? You know what you learn? People don't hate tomatoes. People hate fake tomatoes. <laughs> and they've spent their entire life thinking they were the same thing. I see a lot of people walking away from religion. And I wanna declare this morning, praise God because our hearts were made for more than religion. And we've spent our life thinking the fake thing is the real thing. And I wanna say this morning, if you are dissatisfied with religion, you're gonna love Jesus. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this morning, as we've had the opportunity to just reflect a little bit on the way of Jesus, Would you help, in a unique and creative way this morning, the person who has those deep questions and a lot, a lot, a lot of angst about them, that they would sense your nearness this morning and your love, and that the God that could send Thomas is the God in this room. And we also want to declare this morning, we do not want religion, Jesus, we want you. We do not want ideology. We want you. We want you, Jesus, above all, and anything that gets in the way must be burned to the ground. We want you, Jesus, and we follow you with all of our hearts. And this morning, heal the hearts and minds of people in this room who've been hurt and wounded by the church, struggle to know how to believe, would you know the sense of God who is with you today? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com. <laughs>